0: Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio.
1: Full Service.
0: Full Service. Full Service.
1: Full Service Radio. From Full Service Radio, this is Bad Feminist Making Films, a podcast presented by Riza and Ethnoscene Collectives. I'm your host, Maggie Lemire, and I'm here today with a special co-host, my friend and collaborator, Elena Guzman, who's one of our bad feminist producers and a member of the Ethnosync Collective. Hi, Elena. Hey there. Thanks for being here. We'd like to welcome you back to our podcast, a show where we talk to bad feminist filmmakers who are confronting and changing the film industry through intersectional and decolonial practice.
2: Yes, and our lens for today is
1: Women Behind the Camera. And we have an amazing guest today, which is Alexis Jackson. So, Elena, you've been part of this bad feminist journey uh, since the beginning. You were part of the first live event that we did two years ago, and you've actually already been part of two different episodes, including the very first one.
2: Yeah, I'm really excited to be co-hosting and kind of be in front of the scenes of uh, the podcast, and it's been so exciting, really participating in the live events and the series in general, um, behind the scenes, both in creating and collaborating with the event and also being a part of the event and now the podcast as well. And I mean, I'm sure we can kind of all relate to this, but one of the really exciting things for me has been just being able to find a safe space, a, a place where I can kind of talk and just carve out that space where I feel like I'm rejuvenating myself. Um, I mean, there's so much going on. There are always things going on in the world, but I feel like every time I'm uh, looking at the news or scrolling through my feed, there's just something that just makes me feel really uh, down with everything that's going on in the world. And so it's just been really great to be working with Bad Feminist Making Films as a series because it's really just about creating and carving that space for ourselves to have these really intense conversations, but at the same time rejuvenating conversations. Mm -hmm. And it's just really about highlighting filmmakers who are, who are carving the work out, who are carving these spaces through their work and who are also breaking down barriers and just doing work that is exciting and rejuvenating uh, in so many different ways. And it's one of the reasons that I'm really excited about the episode that we're doing today, because our guest today is doing that same exact work and carving out those spaces and breaking down those barriers for us to think about and not only think but also see what women behind the camera looks like and and what i really value is being able to have that perspective of women of color behind the camera but specifically black women behind the camera especially when you look at the really dismal statistics of women in the filmmaking industry women of color in the filmmaking industry and then black women in the filmmaking industry so i'm really excited Mm -hmm. about today's episode for sure what about you maggie what what makes you excited about today's episode
1: Uh, well everything you just said resonated someone said to me recently that like you know every every film you work on will probably break your heart several times Um, and I've certainly been going through some heartbreak on one of my projects and so I feel like although we're often talking about some of the shit that we go through it's actually really healing to be able to talk about it in community and to not talk just about the problems but also the ways that we're working to address those problems and to make art and to change ourselves in the process and the industry in the process. Um, so thanks for bringing that up. Cause in its own way, I think this whole experience has been really rejuvenating and, f- and filling and healing for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that this is a really critical episode. So we've given some statistics like only 4% of directors Are women, and of course, it's way less for women of color. Um, And I was shocked, actually. I was looking at a blog that Alexis, our guest, wrote to to see that only two percent of the top one hundred films in two thousand seventeen were women. And again, I'm sure that's, you know, lower of with women of color, and that's just absurd. And how many stories are we missing out on? How many critical perspectives? How much beauty? Um, And Alexis is clearly a badass who's been, you know, pushing forward and working across different mediums. She does music videos. Um, and so I just am super excited to listen and learn and, and hear about her journey and for that journey to be amplified out um, to show other, other women and other women of color, you know, what can be possible and, and how she's been able to navigate this and be successful. Um, so with that, let's introduce Alexis. Elena, do you want to read her bio for everyone? Yeah, absolutely. Um,
2: Alexis is generally just a badass, but I'll read the bio to explain to you why. (laughs) So Alexis Jackson is a director of photography and music video uh, director originally from Detroit, Michigan. From a very early age, she aspired to be a visual storyteller. She made her first film at eight years old using the family camcorder, which, which starred her collection of Transformers and Barbie dolls. Ten years later, she enrolled in... Film School at the University of Michigan, where she earned a Bachelor's of Arts degree in film and video studies and English. For for further formal training, she also completed the intensive summer film program at the University of Southern California. Since then, Alexis has served as director of photography on numerous pieces, ranging from narrative films, commercials, promo spots, TV show segments, and music videos. She has directed and produced award-winning music videos in a variety of genres. Her work has been recognized at least 20 times by a number of international bodies, including film festivals across the United States, Canada, Australia, Kenya, Uganda, the Netherlands, and the UK. She was spotlighted on Amy Poehler's Smart Girls in March 2018. Also in 2018, she was invited to speak publicly at Terminus Conference and Festival, where she presented a seminar entitled Cinematography, Crafting a Look with Lenses and Filters. She has spoken on several other panels, podcasts, radio interviews, et cetera, not only about cinematography, but also what it's like to be a woman of color in the film industry.
1: Wow. Alexis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Uh, we're going to totally post the Amy Poehler Smart Girls video on our Facebook page because it's, uh, amazing and inspiring, um, Mm -hmm. and some of your other work. Um, but Alexis, maybe to kick this off, I would love to bring it back to your Barbie dolls and transformers. Um, (laughs) talk to us about, you know, sort of when you discovered your love and your passion for storytelling and film and, and kind of how this has evolved for you.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um. Pretty much as soon as I was old enough or able to write sentences, I was writing, like, novels in finger quotes and making my family members read them. (laughs) So, like, any of my, like, cousins or aunts will hear that and laugh because that was something that I was doing when I was, you know, five or six writing little mystery novels because I was a really voracious reader. Mm. And so I was really into consuming and then creating stories from a very early age. Um, My parents both kind of wanted me to be a lawyer. You know, a lot of people still ask me, so are you going to go to law school one day? But it was just never in my personality. I always wanted to um, tell stories and create characters and narratives. Um, As you mentioned, I made my first film, again, in finger quotes, when I was eight (laughs) years old um, with the family camcorder. When I would play with my toys, like I had a little tape recorder and it wasn't just regular. It was like a radio show. (laughs) <laughs> where everybody was like a different character on the radio show. I also had, I don't know if y'all remember Polly Pockets.
2: I do The little yes. things that you're supposed to. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I played like those all little, the time. <laughs> um,
0: like toys. And the whole purpose or the whole marketing plan with them is that you're supposed to be able to carry them in your pocket and take them wherever you go, and then you can take them out and play with them. I didn't do that. I had like an elaborate setup on these two dressers in my room, and it was a soap opera. And like nobody was allowed <laughs> to touch it. Like, when my cousins or whoever would come over, I said, well, no, you can't move them because they have to be in their positions for the next episode of the soap opera. So, um, yeah, like I said, pretty much um, from the, the time that I was able to conceptualize stories, I was really into creating them, and that's something that I kind of carried throughout my life with me and shaped what I wanted to do for a living when I got older. Um, eventually, that really, um, because that, that creative force that desire to create has kind of morphed and manifested itself in different ways throughout my life. But Mm -hmm. I would say that it really, I really became focused on music videos when not to tell everybody how old I am, but like when I was about 11 and I would watch music videos like all day on MTV and like VH1 and BET. um, And I just really kind of fell in love with, fell in love with music videos as an art form. um, The way that the images kind of relate to the music and vice versa how you can pull in so many different like aspects and aesthetics of other art forms into a music video from you know doing a certain color scheme that is similar to painting, or you can have somebody dancing when of course dancing is an art form so um just then the narrative freedom to kind of tell a story that took place over five minutes or you know, three centuries or even four seconds if you decided to do it in super slow motion. I just felt like there was so much narrative freedom there that you didn't necessarily get with a book or a movie or what have you. So I really fell in love with music videos as an art form, in particular, I would say, when I was 11. And I was like, I want to be a music video director when I grow up. And, you know, I stuck with it and went to film school. And, you know, yeah, here I am still making music videos in my, you know, older age
1: (laughs) so cool your um your childhood story reminds me a little bit of myself um and I feel like there's this theme around everyone having like been a big reader and very playful and imaginative as kids but I was such a nerd I had a U.S. map and a world map in my childhood bedroom and I I really wanted to be like a journalist when I was younger actually sort of related but I would pretend that I was so nerdy I would pretend I was like Tom Brokaw (laughs) Cause of course, all I saw was like a man, and I would like make up all these stories about the world, and I just like really wanted to travel and go tell stories. Um, that was my my early spark. Um, and also, really cool about music videos and um, and all the different ways you can play with the form. One of the things at Risa Collective that we're really passionate about is like social justice music videos and thinking about how to use film. To help support movements but not just through sort of like the micro documentary but uh Mm, through bringing mm -hmm. all these different um creative avenues together um so did you tell us about the decision to like go to film school and and kind of the experiences of really starting to pursue this um, seriously professionally what was it like for you what's it been like for you
0: well i went to the university of michigan Um, i'm originally from detroit as you mentioned i think that's all in my bio but Um, I went to the University of Michigan. Uh, Their film school is not, you know, world-renowned the same way that, um, like, the University of Southern California is. And actually, uh, USC was my first choice for a really long time. And I got in and I got a partial scholarship. And I changed my mind at the last minute because I didn't want to be that far away from my family. So I decided that, you know, I could kind of get the best of both worlds, still study film, but still be close to my family because um, my relationship with them is really, really important to me. So I went to a film school at the University of Michigan. Um, there was a brief period where I considered going the business uh, route, even though that wasn't really what I wanted to do and I've always been more of a creative person. I was kind of falling into that whole, oh, well, this will be more stable and, you know, easier. And, you know, the University of Michigan's business school was really heavily recruited. So I was like, well, maybe I'll do a double major in business marketing and film so that I have, like, the business marketing to kind of fall back on. But really, I just want to be a filmmaker. But the issue was that the University of Michigan at the time, they do now, but at the time they did not have a dual degree program with the business school and then the school that's, uh, um like oh, the school of the college of LSNA is basically what it's called, where you have your humanities and stuff like that.
1: Hmm.
0: So, um, but I got distracted. I'm getting like a call. I thought I turned that off so that can happen. I don't know if you all can hear that beeping. Nope. It's almost over.
1: No worries. Okay.
0: Sorry about that. Um, yeah. So, Uh, College of LSNA and B-School did not have a dual degree um, program. Like you couldn't be enrolled in both schools at the same time. So I had to pick one. So at first I thought that I would just go ahead and, you know, do the B-School because like I said, easier, really heavily recruited. And I started taking the prereqs for the B-School, like, you know, accounting and economics and stuff like that. And I was like, I hate this. You know, like I don't want to spend the rest of my life doing something that I hate. So even if filmmaking is not as much of a sure path like that's what I love that's what I want to do I would rather deal with that being a little less stable and be happy with what I'm doing and not need a vacation from it than to do something just because it's safer and kind of hide or hinder like tuck away that part of myself that just wants to tell stories all the
1: time. Hmm. It seems like there's often like an inflection point or moment where we have to really commit ourselves uh, to this path. Elena, did you have a moment like that? Yeah, I mean, I
2: guess I'm having that moment now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that it's like a, there was a particular moment in the past that I think like I've just really come to love filmmaking and it's just something that I want to continue to commit myself to in the midst of also committing myself to other
1: things, so I definitely can, can relate to that as well. And how did you build your career from there, Alexis? What has that looked like and, and been like, especially, you know, being a woman and a black woman who's so underrepresented in this industry? Like how did you break in?
0: Oh uh, well it definitely hasn't been easy, you know, it's been um you know not a straight line there have been twists and turns and actually kind of going back to what it was like being in film school you know i was in film school surrounded mostly by you know white men there weren't very many women i think that if my memory serves me correctly there was one other black woman in the film program while i was there and you know she and i kind of became fast friends because of that but if my memory serves me correctly unless there was somebody that i didn't know about that i didn't have any classes list or anything like that in my graduation year there were two of us and then in terms of even you know women of color or men of color there just weren't really that many it was very much like a white male dominated program even then so um that was something that when i was that age I, You know, I was, I've always been fairly woke in finger quotes, but I still didn't have a full understanding of the ways that that was going to manifest itself or repeat itself throughout my career as being a common theme. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
0: so I would say, honestly, what I ultimately kind of learned and what ultimately got me to where I am today is recognizing that it's important for sometimes for us to create our own spaces or our own... Um, outlets for stories, because a lot of times, like, the people that are in the majority or in the position of power are not necessarily interested in our stories or don't think that they're as profitable or relatable to, to other people. So, um, you know, I really started kind of focusing my attention, if that makes sense, on working with more, like, you know, women of color filmmakers, more, like, black male filmmakers, et cetera and really kind of investing myself in that community. And I would say that, you know, I get hired more often than not by people of color than anything else. I get hired by both, but like Mm -hmm. as a DP, like as a director of photography, I tend to get hired by women and, um, and or people of color way more than white men.
2: Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I've, I've kind of found a similar thing as well. I think in so many ways we kind of like, these are the communities that we create, and we also are very intentional about like who we're working with as well. It's been a theme that people in the past of the podcast have said as well. Um, so I guess I'm kind of wondering, as a kind of follow-up question to that, you talk about some of those, like, that experience that you had in, uh, in film school. So how does that translate into your actual filming practice in terms of, like, the end of the presentation? Do you feel like you have a certain sensibility that was built from that experience that you have in terms terms of representation, like, what is your, like, aesthetic pull? Like, what are the things that you like to highlight? What are the things that you like to kind of bring to the the light through the lens?
0: Hmm. Well, I would say actually kind of going back to something that you mentioned earlier when you were talking about um, using art, whether it be, like, mini documentaries or music videos or what have you um, in a social justice vein. um, For one thing, I think that nobody no two people are going to tell a story the same way there are nuances of the you know things that happened to me in my life or things that i've seen that no other person has experienced or seen that is going to impact the way that i tell a story even in subtle ways so i feel like everybody's going to tell a story differently which is why it's so important to have different voices in the industry so that we're not all just getting kind of a you know regurgitation of the same thing over and over again and as it relates to social justice there are Um, You know, social justice issues that I pay a lot of attention to and am really outspoken about. And I like to think that that comes out in my work in some ways, in terms of, you know, not wanting to do things that are going to paint women in a certain light or LGBTQ people in a certain light. Um, And I think that a lot of times when you see media that's coming out where you can tell that there were no members of that community in the writer's room Mm -hmm. you see portrayals of people that are a little bit more stereotypical you know you have like the sassy gay friend or the sassy black friend and you don't get nuanced characters that have these identities because a lot of times the people in the writer's room do not reflect those identities and don't know how to accurately portray them so i i would like to think at least and this is something that i've been told that that's something that comes out in my in my work and also the the gigs that I choose to take, you know, like the when people call me and want to hire me for something like the ones that I take versus turned down um, and just being outspoken about it, you know, in a space like this one or, you know, some of the other interviews I've done, like I like to think that all of those things together are kind of shaping the lens in general and also indicative of the lens that I see, th- see things through and try to show to other people.
1: Definitely. Um, That's really interesting. Also thinking about like, what do we take? And what do we turn down? And and how do we decide what we commit ourselves to? (laughs) Because each project is like its own emotional, intellectual journey, I think, you know, whether it's our own, or even working with a client. And I'm kind of curious, you know, as you've been in this work and in this field, where are you with that? Like, what makes you decide who you'll work with, and what you'll commit to at this point, if you have any kind of like, rough rubric in your mind hmm
0: well one thing that i'll say and i've I've said this to a lot of for example like documentary filmmakers i recently was one of the camera operators on a documentary that's about um, basically conservative mothers who basically thought that being gay was a sin and then they ended up having a gay child and how that transformed them and now they advocate for the lgbtq community and um I did that for a little bit of a discounted rate. And that's something that I say a lot, you know, like if somebody's doing something that has to do with a cause or a message that I believe in, um, if it's a filmmaker that doesn't have the same resources to pay me what my actual day rate is, I'm a little bit more likely to consider doing something like that because I support the message. And I recognize that people that are paying attention to those messages and putting those messages out may not always have the same resources to do that, kind of going back to what I was saying a second ago about the industry being very, like, white male-dominated. And, um, you know, throughout history, when you look at the ways that people in marginalized communities were, um, you know, legally prevented from accumulating wealth and accumulating those resources to bankroll, you know, projects that cost millions and millions of dollars, um, when you kind of think of the way that history has played out and the manifestations of that in this day and age... Sometimes filmmakers who are telling these stories and belong to these communities don't have the same resources as the people that are making Spider Man, right? So, mm-hmm. um, saying all that to say that that will absolutely influence how, like, sometimes I may donate my time even for free or for you know a discounted rate to a filmmaker that is telling a story like that, where I think that you know where I get that added benefit of feeling like I'm helping to put that out in the world even if I'm not getting fully paid for it. And then as it relates to my music video work, because there's kind of the um, the dual aspect of me being both a director of photography and also being a music video director. Um, I did a music video for this artist named Shah Simuli, And we did a video that kind of showed the progression or like the historical trajectory of um, the relationship between like police and black Americans, how police have kind of unfairly targeted black Americans through Um, You know, like the convict leasing system, when right after slavery was abolished, they, you know, started making these laws against, like, loitering and what have you, and then, like, arresting black people en masse and then putting them back into a system that was very, like, similar to slavery. And that was, like, something that was very specifically targeted by police, like, at the time, and then also COINTELPRO in the 1960s, where, you know, black civil rights leaders were targeted by police to kind of disrupt the civil rights movement. kind of like showing all these different ways throughout history that that has worked to remind people like this is people aren't making this up this is a real thing and that's a project that when i listened to the song and kind of thought about the story and saw a way to put this message out there like that's something that would make me you know pick up something like that even if there wasn't as much money in it um and also really kind of throw myself in that so i love to pick up projects Whether it's a music video or something that I'm the director of photography for, I love to involve myself in, um, you know, like videos and pieces of art that I think are transforming the, the world or teaching somebody something in a different
1: way. Definitely. Um, one of the quotes that uh, we saw in the Amy Poehler piece about you was, um, or, or there was a quote that said, carve out a space for yourself so that the women behind you can carve out an even bigger space. And it seems like one mm-hmm. of your transformative practices, we talk a lot about transformative practices on the show, is really trying to support other creatives who haven't you know, been situated with all the resources as those, you know, white dudes in Hollywood essentially. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah, I guess like, what is that, what does that quote, um, that you so beautifully stated mean for you? And, and, and how do you like when you're on the set and stuff and working with others in those spaces, um, how do you try to hold that space? And I guess, you know, what would you recommend for others who are trying to also hold the space?
0: (laughs) Well, it means so much to me that that quote has resonated so much with people. Um, and it's something I would say, like, out of the entire Amy Poehler piece, it's the thing that people reference the most, and I love that. But, um, you know, I've tried to, for example, like, along the way, I've met other women, especially women of color, that are interested in working in camera, and I try to pull them along with me as much as possible, um, you know, I have, a like, a squad that I work with. We call each other squad. It's, like, my camera department, which consists of my first and second AC that I work with most often, who are also two black women that I met along the way in kind of lower positions in the camera department. And I'm like, you know, let's stick together. Like, when there's moments on set, like, you know, let's talk about this thing. Like, my second AC, Gladys, I remember, you know, like, one time we were on set and she was asking me some questions about, like, lens stuff that she didn't know about while we were in the middle of setting up. Um, opportunities like that to, you know, maybe to kind of take somebody under my wing or mentor a young woman of color that's interested in camera that may not get those same mentorship opportunities or interests from other people that are in that position. Um, that means the world to me, and it's something that I really try to focus on. But I do want to say, you know, like, I've, I'm very happy in most ways with, like, where my career is, and I've, you know, gotten It's one of those things when you look back and you see that you're in this place where you wanted to be for so long, you know. But I'm not, you know, I'm not like up at the complete top where I get to just kind of move all these pieces around. Like sometimes I do have to take jobs or things that are not as social justice oriented because of the money. I don't always do that. And I'm not always in a position to be able to pull other women of color behind me. But I really try to as much as much as possible and I would say that subjectively speaking like my objective goals of course are like one day I want to be in the American Society of Cinematographers and stuff like that but I would not feel like my career was successful if I cannot see the ways that I've made it easier for other women to enter this field other people of color especially like I said women of color black women in particular Um, like I would not feel successful if I cannot tangibly see ways that I've done that or prioritized that
2: yeah, absolutely. And it reminds me of that that kind of saying or that notion of lift while you climb. Um, that even yeah, as you yourself are building your own career, you're also like helping others along the way and you have to kind of make those choices when you can make those uh, discounted rates or when you can't. And I think that's so important and it's a reality. I think that all of us um, have to face for sure. Um, what's been your experience as a black woman filmmaker on set behind the camera? What has been like some obstacles or barriers that you've had to face? And like, what has been people's reaction to you um, or non-reaction maybe? Oh, wow.
0: Um, I have so many different stories that kind of pop in my head when I think about that. Um, One story that I tell a lot that uh, uh, there have been several times when people have mistaken me for the makeup artist on set. Even when, like, there was one time, like, this person, every single time they saw me, I had a camera in my hand. I was, like, a camera operator on something. He was like, oh, do you do makeup, too? Why would I do makeup, oh too? Like, you God. would literally never think to ask a man with a camera in his hand if he also did makeup. And the thing is, you know, I can see how people on the other side, like, people in the majority may think that something like that is harmless or just funny. But the issue is is that because people, when they see me, they see a makeup artist, if I'm on set, The issue with that is that they don't see a director of photography or a director and they continue Mm -hmm. to take that bias or that viewpoint into other spheres. And like that is kind of the impetus for like hiring discrimination because people are like, oh, black women are, you know, DPs or directors or what have you. Um, A a colleague of mine that is a producer in New York was talking to me. I think I posted something about that on social media. And she was telling her own stories of, you know, being on set and somebody walking up to her and saying, oh, could you go tell the producer so-and-so? And she was like, I am the producer. Like, I hired you. Like, you have a job today because of me. <sighs> and um, again, you know, like I said, like, there are, are ways where you can just kind of laugh at it. But like I said, at the end of the day, it it kind of becomes a, like a cycle or um, Catch-22 where because... People look at women and women of color and don't see these higher positions. When they're in a place to hire or recommend somebody for these positions, they may not be as likely to do so. And people might say, oh, well, you know, if they were good at it, then that wouldn't be a problem. And it's like, no, that's ridiculous. Like, that's not how this works. When you look at, you know, like hiring practices, there's like so many different. There's like an ad load of empirical data that shows like hiring biases in all kinds of industries as it relates to, you know, if you send out a resume with the exact same qualifications, but one says David and one says DeAndre, like that person named DeAndre is going to get called 40% less of the time, even if the resumes say the exact same thing. Like there's empirical data that shows this. So, you know, same thing, there's imp- that empirical data supports the fact that even if you are as good at a job, if a person sees you or sees your name and has a certain bias associated with that, it's going to take a lot more for you to get ahead. There's this quote that a lot of, you know, other like black people that I know are people of color are all familiar with this quote that you have to work twice as hard to get half as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like I said, those little kind of anecdotes about, oh, somebody thought I was a makeup artist. Ha ha. You know, we can laugh at them, but it's also kind of to laugh to keep from crying because it's really frustrating when you've worked as hard as you have and sometimes people still overlook you or don't take you as seriously because you don't look to them what a director or a director of photography is supposed to look like.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That resonates with me so much, that kind of working twice as hard. It's like a mantra that I've lived with my entire life. And I remember actually once I was uh, filming this moment, and then um, there was this group of men who weren't uh, filmmakers at all. They were just part of who I was filming, and they had wanted to see the footage. I showed it to them and they were like oh wow you're actually a good filmmaker <laughs> and like, I was like I think they meant that as like a compliment but like they were like oh wow you actually caught the nuances of what we were doing and I was like wow you know what a way to like compliment me and then completely un like, invalidate the, the kind of experience exactly. I have. And I think it has so much have to do with, like, oh, well, we didn't expect this from you, you know? So I think I, I definitely resonate with that, that experience so much of just not being taken seriously because of whatever uh, expectations or stereotypes people have of me because of the, the color of my skin or the fact that I'm a woman or whatever else they may see.
0: Yeah, Yeah. like, for example, even, like, Rachel Morrison, um, who is the
2: only woman in the history of the
0: Oscars to ever be nominated for Best Cinematography. There have been 90 years of Oscars. Only one woman has been nominated. That was this year. She um, even said in an interview that she did how she kind of watched as her male peers got calls that she didn't get even after she had had six films that she DP'd that had been in Sundance or, you know, worked on this film, worked on that film, and she said that people, she saw men that were kind of in her circle, her peers, getting calls to do things that she wasn't getting, even though they had not had that same level of success or didn't have those credentials behind them. And a lot of women experience that. Like, if you talk to, you know, like you just said, other women in the industry and even, you know, other industries, like, that's such a common thread that we talk about. And so it's just mind-boggling that, you know, sometimes people that are not in that position want to act like we're making this up or we're hysterical. But, yeah, like I said, the only woman that's ever been nominated for Best Cinematography in the history of the Oscars has had that problem.
1: Yeah, and the lack of representation is also true, um, as we discussed previously, for people of color not getting those nominations, and it's such a multi-layered problem. I was, uh, I think, telling Elena at some point that I'm sort of an ideas person, and I even with male, very progressive friends of mine, supposedly progressive friends of mine, I said, oh, I have this idea of this film that I want to do, and blah, 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 and this guy just sat across from me like, totally straight faced and said oh i would love to direct that for you (laughs) i was like what oh my god (laughs) that's not that's what uh yeah so man we have to band together um with that we should actually take a really quick break um so you've been listening to bad feminist making films on full service radio Welcome back to Bad Feminist Making Films, a podcast presented by the RISA and Ethnocene Collectives here on Full Service Radio. Today we have the great honor of speaking with our guest, um, Alexis Jackson, about women behind the lens. Um, We've been having a great real talk conversation about all of the challenges um, that that entails, especially um, intersectionally, being a woman of color. Um, but, Alexis, I, I know you wrote in a blog post that I saw that, like, while this conversation is maybe finally starting to happen, you know, with, um, like, Oscars so white and Me Too and stuff, it can't just be, like, this momentary thing. There has to be, like, real structural uh, and transformative change um, culturally in our industry uh, and hiring practices, et cetera. So I'm kind of curious, you know, what your thoughts are about, like, how we can move forward and move this conversation forward. Um, and like, what what's giving you hope, or what's what's lifting you up, and and making you? I don't know. How are you feeling? I guess is another question. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is, you know, sometimes these like buzzy things are. Uh, it's complicated.
0: Oh yeah, no, it's definitely complicated, and it's kind of an emotional roller coaster at times. When you look at some things and you see this growth or this progress, and then you see other things, and you're like, oh, how is this still happening? And it's almost 2019. But, um, yeah, to answer the first part of your question, um, in the blog that you're referencing, I just talked about how there we can't lose focus on that. Like, we have to look at it and make an intentional shift, because if the industry does not continue to make an intentional shift, it's just going to kind of go back to, you know, the wheel turning the way that it's been turning for years, um, particularly in terms of. It actually, yeah, this kind of gives me a chance to give a disclaimer that I've been wanting to give. Like for those that are listening, and it's, it's honestly kind of annoying that sometimes it's necessary to say this, but, um, what we're saying, or at least for me, you know, like we're not like bashing white men or saying like white men are terrible. But the fact of the matter is, is that like in this country, because of again, you know, like legal discrimination, uh, like discriminatory, like hiring practices, et cetera, um, you know, the industry, when you look at it, has just continued to be like overwhelmingly Um, like white male and like not very many women not many people of color because you know historically there was a point in history where it was legal to do that like patty mcdaniel who's the first person who ever won an oscar she was the one in gone with the wind could not enter in the same door and sit at the table with her cast like she has to come in through the back door and sit in the back of the room and that is like a very real part of our history in the film industry is you know things like that so like when we get to 2018 now like yeah theoretically, like, there are no legal barriers in that same way. But, like, at the time when there was, you know, the industry just continued to grow and continue to be, like, predominantly white and male. And so then there was never a thorough, um, like, comprehensive move made to address and fix that. So it's continued to be that way. And there have been very, like, small strides and, like, a little bit of progress made here and there, which is awesome, but it's going really, really slowly, because there has not been an intentional shift to fix it, to fix the problem that was there. You know, like for example, if you break your leg, like, yeah, if you just never do anything about it and you hop or get better slowly, but what will actually fix it and what needs to happen is there needs to actually be, again, like an intentional thing to, you know, to heal your leg, to like keep it straight in the way that it's supposed to be and to heal it. So, that's just something that we have to like pay attention to. Like, I'm really looking forward to seeing the, you mentioned the statistics of like 2017 and how only two of the top 100 films had a female cinematographer and looking at the percentage of like female directors and producers and writers. You know, I'm really looking forward to seeing the statistics for 2018, which should be released soon from the uh, center for women in film and television, because um, they're they're the ones that like, bring up those statistics that people quote a lot and they research them. You know, I'm really looking forward to seeing the statistics for 2018 because there was a little bit more of an intentional shift. There was a bigger conversation about it. But, you know, one year or one, you know, Me Too movement or, you know, the futurist female movement is not going to be enough to undo the years and years and years of um, hindrance from having, you know, equal footing in this industry. Like if you look at, You know, the MPAA says that 52% of movie watchers are women. But when you look at most of the positions behind the camera, like women make up 18% of those. And so, again, like that's not something that's just going to gradually get better if there isn't a focus on it or an intentional shift, like intentionally, intentionally swinging that pendulum to the middle or like swinging it maybe kind of far on the other side so eventually it'll fall back in the middle
2: totally yeah absolutely there's so much work that needs to be done for sure and we are so lucky that we have folks like you who are just doing this work to make these shifts and um just keep keep pushing for sure um and I wish we could, like, have, I have so many more questions, and I wish we could keep talking, but unfortunately, we are out of time, but thank you so much for just inspiring, you know, all of us. Um, we're going to kind of shift a little bit to our section on the shout-outs, um, and yeah, Meg, do you want to talk sure. a little bit more about some of our shout-outs?
1: Yeah, so, um, in our running effort to support each other to be successful we wanted to tell you that there's an opportunity with the bay area video consortium they have their media maker fellowship Um, the application is due january 7th so you still have some time and the fellowship um, is helping you know independent artists and documentary filmmakers and multimedia projects to get near completion so it's for post-production and you get eight thousand dollars and mentorship and community and you get to go to the camden international film festival Um, so you can check that out on their website which is bavc.org so that's one way they might be able to get some financial support for a project that you're trying to finish as well as all of the strategic community that we all know is so necessary to to make things happen to finish things Um, and elena i think you have a film you saw that you wanted to recommend to folks Oh yeah, for sure. So I actually got the—I was really lucky to get the chance to see this film in
2: theaters. Um, it's called Born in Flames, and is a film made in the nineteen eighty-three. And it's been listed in some lists—not a lot of lists—but it's been listed in some lists as the must-see feminist film of our time. So people should definitely see it. It's set in this kind of dystopia world after a socialist revolution, and while it sounds like it could be a great place. There's still all of these intersectional problems around race and gender and class. And so a group of women kind of pushed the revolution forward. And it's really a, a really great film that is so timely. Um, it was made in the 1980s, but continues to be timely today. So definitely put that on your list of bad feminist filmmaking films that you want to that you want to see that you should definitely see
1: and hopefully we can uh, work with alexis to get some of her recommended films and some of her work up on our facebook page um bad feminists making films on facebook we also have a website but um alexis i really think we need like a part two to like really dive deep in this (laughs) so uh everyone stay tuned for that i just want to keep talking to you and learning from you and everyone thanks so much for listening to bad feminists making films and full service radio we'll see you all next time and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com/slash full service radio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at Full Service RDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.